Welcome to the Big Swings Podcast with Eric Schaefer. Episode 5. Time to get the East Coast-West Coast connection started. You are not going to want to miss this episode. the Big Swings Podcast, your source for breakthrough trends, shaping business and technology innovation. And now your host. We're all glad he finally excelled in sales. For now, we can remove his Little League All-Star Trophy from the mantle, Eric Schaefer. I'm going to start today with a quick quote from Stephen Fry, author of the Fry Chronicles. I will defend the absolute value of Mozart over Miley Cyrus. Of course I will. But we should be wary of false dichotomies. You do not have to choose between one or the other. You can have both. The human cultural jungle should be as varied and plural as the Amazonian rainforest. We are all richer for biodiversity. We may decide that a puma is worth more to us than a caterpillar. But surely... We can agree that the habitat is all the better for being able to sustain each. Welcome to episode five of the Big Swings podcast. Today's conversation is around culture on innovation. Joining me today, a special guest, Tatiana Mamut. She is the general manager and director with Amazon Web Services. Tatiana, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. So, Tatiana, I always like to try to start each episode uh, with a little bit of a background of, uh, for the listeners and who we're talking to. So, if you don't mind, take us a little bit through your background, starting uh, with your education as well as your corporate travels. All right. So, I'm a, a strange bird. Um, I think I'm going to start with my family, if that's okay. So, one of the things to understand about me, if I grew up in an environment where my mother's an engineer, my grandmother's an engineer, my father's an engineer, my brother's an engineer, my aunt's an engineer, and um, and so I am the black sheep in the family. I am a social scientist, <laughs> and um, so I fortunately my first degree was in economics, which they could you know sort of be okay with because I did a lot of mathematical modeling and, and focused on econometrics. And then I discovered something, which was the way that we model human behavior in economics doesn't actually turn out to be true. And what I I finished college in the mid-1990s, and I worked a lot on, at that time, the uh, Russian economic transition. I did an internship over the summer on the Defense Conversion Center. Um, really studying how Russian defense conversion projects were going. And then the crisis in Russia happened. And it turned out that all of my econometric modeling of human behavior just turned out to be wrong. And the best mathematical minds in the world turned out to be wrong. So I started asking myself, what's going on with people? How do people make decisions? Why do people do what they actually do? Because math doesn't seem to explain it very well. And um, worked in advertising for a little while to try to get into the heart of, of irrational, what I consider to be purely irrational decision making, <laughs> and decided to pursue a PhD in, in uh, anthropology and cultural anthropology and, and studying Russia and how you know human beings actually made decisions, how culture shapes 
economic outcomes. So that's really what I focused on studying. And after that, I went and worked at design firm IDEO, which is a global design agency, and worked on creating a lot of digital platforms to help transform people's experiences of education and um, of you know, creating new things in the developing world. Um, worked with Elizabeth Warren to help her set up uh, the financial tools for the American pop- population to make better financial decisions and try to affect economic decision-making through new tools. And I really found that the thing that uh, the thing that makes certain companies thrive and become successful versus the ones that don't is not about technology because technology these days is pretty much a commodity with all our open source technologies that are available to all of us. Right, right. And it, it's not IP, right? And it's not, you know, our, you know, factory lines or how efficient we are in manufacturing. It's really about the culture that we set up in our organizations. So lots of ideas, lots of companies have lots of ideas, but it's really how they set up their culture internally that, separates whether those ideas make it to market and whether they are effective and successful. And so that led me to go into uh, big technology companies and try to say, how can I, as an actual operational leader, start to transform and help create the cultures of innovation within my teams Mm -hmm. to not just invent new things, but actually continue to try to drive development um, in a new kind of, uh, you know, cultural model uh, for people working within these organizations. So I, I'm currently at Amazon, um, at Amazon Web Services, where I've, you know, built a new team. Uh, we grew from two to 120 in less than a year, set up the culture here. And at the same time, we're doing it all in the service of driving a new innovation and delivering a new to the world product. So it's been really, really great to fine tune some of my learnings Right. Um, in uh, in a real world environment, and culture today. I, I mean, just the term culture continues to get thrown around quite a bit. We're seeing a lot of articles today, a lot of press on organizations, good and bad. Uh, whether it's the culture at Uber uh, and what's shaping there, um, you know, to Ray Dalio and what they're doing at Bridgewater. How would you define the word culture? As an expert in culture, as an anthropologist, um, what I know culture is, is uh, a definition of the space of uh, positions and position takings. So within any organization, you have a set of positions that are possible for people, Mm -hmm. and you have a set of rules that govern how people can actually carve out new position takings that don't yet exist, right? So this is the space of, you know, both structural hierarchy, you know, but also the hierarchies of mental models of how people get rewarded and how people believe they can move or think within the organization, right? So positions and position takings is not just about the hierarchy within an organization, but it's also the mental models, right, that are able to be present, right, within an organization and how uh, big and varied are those mental models capable of being, right? So right. even the, the, the important piece is not just the positions that exist currently or the mental models that exist in the organization, but the position takings 
so the ability for an individual to say, I have a new insight, I have a new mental model of how the world should work, or I have a new mental model for the idea of a product, how possible is it to take that new position within an organization? And so it's always this, this uh, old debate within sociology and the social sciences is what matters, agency or structure? Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, and part of my research was really around saying, actually, those two interact and they're inter they're intertwined with each other and they're mutually co-constituted, which means the structure creates what's possible for agency and then agency actually can reconfigure and redefine the structure. And so whenever you're going into an organization, you really, as a leader, especially as a top leader, you have to think about what is the space of positions that I'm setting up for my people and then how am I creating, I'll use an Amazonian term here, mechanisms for new people to set up new positions and take new positions within the organization that I haven't even imagined. No, that's great. And, and to focus on those positions and position takings, um, you presented at the culture summit, uh, last year. Uh, and one of the things that you left that presentation with was challenging your listeners. Um, and I'll quote you, and that is do something small this week learn from it, do something bigger next week, learn, and then repeat. And so for our listeners, I want, I wanted to focus on that because we'll bring this conversation full circle at the end where Tatiana, I'll have you elaborate on that a little bit more, but I think there's three positions and position takings um, that I really wanted to focus on in this conversation. And that is culture stemming from the corporate level, uh, which you addressed, uh, as well as leadership or executive positions. And then what can we do as employees uh, to facilitate a positive culture and drive those positions uh, within an organization? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, so from a corporate standpoint, and, and I've done a lot of research since you and I discussed doing this recording and talking on this, this topic of culture in most C-suites today, 80% of them or more identify culture as an imperative part of their success. Yet less than 10% of the C-suite, unlike the guy at the culture summit who stood up and told you that there was nothing wrong with his company culture at the, at the moment and they were doing everything great cannot address how to change the culture for the better. Um, and I think that's right. a, that, that's an issue. How do they go about defining what that culture is going to be and then positively articulating that down to the leadership? I think that's got to be one of the biggest struggles, whether you're starting a new organization or even at Amazon or a large company or mid-sized companies that have been around for a while. Your culture is sometimes defined even by the product, the technology, the legacy of your company. How do you evolve or define that from the top down? Yeah. So you brought up a really critical piece, which I think um, all leaders need to grapple with when they think about their organization, which is path dependency, right? Mm-hmm. And independence between the product and the organization. I'm a big believer in Conway's law, which is that the structures, the communication structures of the organization um, impact what kind of products 
the organization is able to produce, and then the types of products, and then the markets that those products find, then is a feedback loop, has a feedback loop on the organization itself, right? So you get into this, Mm -hmm. you know, dynamic, right, where you have these self-reinforcing feedback loops, right, from organization to market, from market to organization, and so you have to be really critically aware of those path dependencies before you start mucking with redesigning the culture of the organization. Um, so with that said, there are certain things that you, uh, that leaders and especially working with CEOs that I've helped advise them to do. So the first is to really recognize where you are and get real about those path dependencies, right? And where, you know, you feel that you can take more risk and where you feel like you should not take a whole lot of risk. Um, and so those are things like what kinds of, um, behaviors do we want to build, right? So if we want a more transparent, open, and collaborative organization, right, that may actually pose some risks, right, in mm-hmm. terms of um, if you're in a very, uh, I mean, we're all in a highly competitive market, but if you're in a marketplace where you need to keep your launches, uh, potential launches secret, um, and secrecy is a big part, uh, then you know you may want to actually think about whether the, that behavior is right for you. So really be real about um, what kind of behaviors you want to build within the organization, right? Is it collaboration? Is it transparency? Is it experimentation? Um, is it, you know, more motivation, you know, within the uh, employee set? You know, what is it that you actually want to do and be more concrete, right? Is it ongoing research, uh, on, ongoing resource allocation and sticking with decisions with, once they're made? What are those behaviors, and then um, when I was at IDEO and leading the organizational design practice at IDEO, we came up with a, a 4S structure to help organizations start to start, right? Make the mm-hmm. first step and sort of thinking, what can we design to change our organization, right? Because one of the other things about culture, which is not very helpful when people start to say, we're going to redesign the culture, is you can't actually redesign culture. Culture is an outcome right. that happens when... Uh, you know, people interact with each other. And it's about how the communications happen. It's how people, uh, you know, whether people trust each other or not, right? All of those things are outcomes. But there are four things that are levers, right, that you can use to transform your culture. And this is where the experimentation thing comes in. So those four uh, four things are in a 4S sort of structure. So they're easier to remember, mostly for me, right. um, which are story, structure, systems, and skills. So storytelling is really critically important, especially by the CEO. Um, And there's another concept in anthropology called mimetic consciousness, which is that people really adopt the behaviors um, uh, of leaders uh, through mimesis or through um, mimicry, right? Uh, As opposed to a leader telling people what to do and people interpreting those logical words and then doing it. Right. So when I, when I, when I advise leaders on storytelling, what I often tell them is what you say is a lot less important than how you say it or how you Mm -hmm. communicate. Um, because if you write an email to your organization, you say, our new values are innovation you know, high motivation and energy and a passion for our work. And you send this out in an email. (laughs) Everyone's going to interpret that differently. Yeah. Well, not only is everyone going to interpret that differently, but 
the email format is not one that communicates innovation or passion or engagement <laughs> with work. True, true. If you get my meaning. Yes. So, so the, the, how you act and how you behave is for leaders far more transformative, right? Than what you say, right? The what is a lot less important than the how. And so having someone, you know, either in an advisory role or ideally actually on the board of directors who is really understands and attuned to how culture is built and formed can really help bring out those things and help advise the C-suite on even though they're saying these things, even though the words are there, mm -hmm. how are the people going to interpret what those things are, what, what the words are being said? How are they going to interpret that into the organization in, you know, in practice, right? right. In right. practice is very different than in theory. Mm -hmm. And so someone who can actually sit in a, in, a, in a meeting, in a presentation, and start to ask questions about, so how is this being put into practice? How did you do that? Tell me about the mechanisms that you put into place. Tell me how this was delivered. You know, help me understand what your strategy is for you know, the story, the structure, the systems, and the skills right? that you're putting in place within your organization to help make the shift. right? So let me, I talked a little bit about story. Structure is organizational structure. Who reports to whom? You know, is there an office of innovation if, or, you know, a head of innovation with their own team? If there is, you're sending a very powerful message to the rest of the organization that if they want to create a new idea, they can't, right? Because that right. comes from the office yeah. of innovation. Yeah. So, um, you know, so, uh, you know, so I, I, you know, so often I've advised CEOs who want to create like a chief innovation officer. Mm -hmm. It can be an interesting catalyst to get somewhere else if that off, if that position and if that structure is set up correctly. But often it actually has the negative effect of spurring innovation within organizations. Very, I mean, it, it, it's it's really funny, right? And it's totally counterintuitive. But you know, if not done well and right as like just a catalyst for change and it's, and it's message and clearly communicated that this is temporary and this is only going to be here for 18 months or for two years in order to drive system level behavioral change. If that is not communicated, it often has a negative consequence. Right. So I think it, are, that yeah. kind of falls in line with uh, Sarah Cooper's parodies, right. On chief <laughs> innovation officer. Um, exactly. You know, so. Yeah. And I mean, yes. And so, I mean, people recognize it internally within our organizations, but it's astounding to me how few CEOs actually have, again, the mechanisms to listen to what their employees are really thinking and saying, and then bubble that up into the strategic level conversations about now, how do we structure this organization? What do we do next? Right. Mm -hmm. So, so systems are like product development processes. There are things like space. There are things like, um, uh, you know, uh, resource allocation. Those t types of things. Right. Um, and I, I think a lot of a lot has been written about that. So I won't go into that because I think people understand that right. a lot more. Like that. Those are the things that you would traditionally hire consultants, right, to help you rethink or help you do. Um, and then, very importantly, skills. And and skills, right? People think about often hiring new skill sets, which is critically important. 
people think about how do we retrain people? How do we, um, you know, re-incentivize people, which is also very critically important because no matter what you say, people will do what you reward them to do. Right. Mm -hmm. So if your performance management system has not been rethought when you want to create a more innovative organization, you're just not going to get the results that you want. Right. Because people are going to do what they are rewarded to do. Um, So that is a very important piece of obviously the puzzle. And then the other thing is, you know, people oftentimes more traditional companies, I would say, lament this, you know, fast turnover of their top talent. And so saying goodbye and staying in touch is also critically important because people, the best people will churn and the most innovative people will often churn, right? Many times these are the people who get easily bored, they want to move on to the new things, they're on very high growth trajectories. And so they will inevitably leave no matter what you do. And so you know, but you want them to boomerang, or at the very least, you want them to lure other innovative people into your organization, right, as they leave. And so how we actually think about our alumni networks and how we think about um, the people who are still, who used to be employees, but that we still want part of our network is also very critically important for organizations. Yeah, yeah it's creating that network of innovation. Um, so yeah, maintaining those relationships throughout the life cycle. Exactly. Exactly. No, so those, the, that's, those are the four, you know, four places that I often start, Okay. you know, for myself and building my teams, but also when I'm working, you know, or, you know, asked or having dinner with <laughs> someone who wants to make a, an organizational cultural transformation, you know, how are you telling your stories? How are you organizing? Um, you know, uh, what kind of systems do you have in place? You know, all the informal, informal processes that, that, and behaviors that those processes, you know, uh, create. And I ask them a lot about workarounds. What workarounds are people in your organization using? What are the things that they're doing that you don't like? <laughs> right, um, right. Because often that'll tell you more about the real systems that are in place in terms of the cultural system than what you think the formal systems or what should be happening is. And then, you know, how are you actually managing your people and what are you, what are you incentivizing them really? What are you rewarding them for really at the end of the day? Right. And I think all four of those areas play into something you referred to as an innovation premium for a lot of these larger organizations, right? So as investors and stock price evaluations are conducted, these four things play a key role from the top in terms of that innovation premium. Would you agree? Well, I think, you know, I'm not sure if, um, if, or how much Wall Street analysts really understand these things. What they do understand is, wow, this organization has had a lot of new ideas that they've taken to market. Right. This now makes people believe that they'll have more ideas in the future. But the question is, how did they get there, right? And so in organizations like Bridgewater, in organizations like Amazon, which are the most successful organizations in highly competitive markets, the focus on culture by their founders and CEOs is the thing that allowed these organizations to continue to produce these breakthrough ideas, which eventually get rewarded by the market. Um, and, you know, they get rewarded pretty quickly, right? Because mm-hmm. as soon as you can show that you are an engine of new ideas and new innovations, that is what 
you know, people want to see, right? Stock prices based on the belief in future performance, not past performance. At least that's what I learned in my economics classes. Um, and so, and so that is the thing that really drives value. And it stems from CEOs really paying attention to the dynamics within their organizations, right? The cultures within their organizations that they're setting up. So let's drop one level then, now that we've kind of taken a focus at that corporate CEO boardroom level, now that we have the four S's, the story, structure, systems, and skills, how do we now at one layer removed at that either executive, VP, leadership roles, how do we effectively live and communicate in an inclusive culture to stem that innovation coming from the top. Right. So once the overall sort of, you know, tone has been set for this is this is what the organization wants to be. And these are overall the big levers that we're going to use on the organization, right? At Amazon, some of those things are things like the leadership principles, right? The idea mm-hmm. of two pizza teams, right? There's so many, I mean, it's funny because I, I had that 4S framework before I came to work at Amazon or really knew anything about how Amazon functions, but Amazon has all four of those S's in place. Okay. Um, so it's, it's been amazing to sort of take that framework and, and sort of see it in play here. So once, once that's been set up, right, at, at a VP sort of, you know, general manager uh, level, you know, now one layer down, you think about, okay, what are the mechanisms that are right for the thing that I need to deliver, right? Because now you get more concrete, right? You have a very concrete deliverable mm-hmm. within a concrete time frame, and you say, what are the things, what are the, what are the um, mechanisms that I can set up that allow me to make sure that my organization is also functioning this way? So, um, you know, so for example, right, uh, if you know that your if your organization is saying, you know, we want um, you know, more collaboration, right? And we really want to focus on our, you know, you know, product development processes and make them more customer driven, right? So that's something that would come from the very top, right? We want more collaboration. We want everybody to be close to the customer. Uh, we want more, you know, uh, you know, design led, customer empathy led product development. As a VP or as a manager, you can say, okay, how am I going to institute this now? And you can say, you know, every Friday we're going to have a customer come in and we're going to talk to them and, and have them show us how they actually use our product, right? So now you can sort of take that, you can put the system in place where now every Friday a person comes in, we have an all-hands meeting, we actually sit down with a customer, watch them, observe them, watch them use the product in reality so that we are then instituting that. At a, at a team level, right, and driving that c- both collaboration because it's an all hands meeting, right, are focused around the customer. So that's those are the things that at the VP level we should be doing is setting up those mechanisms, thinking about okay, now how do I do this in the context of my team, in the context of my deliverables? How do I actually go to ground on it? You know, as opposed to forwarding an email about us being more customer obsessed, right? right? right. Uh, that's not, that's not okay. Forwarding an email or presenting it in your staff meeting is not going to do it, right? You need to 
figure out now, how am I going to make sure that this actually happens? And this happens even if I go on vacation, that this happens even if I need to step away. This is happens even if I even if I get moved into another role and somebody else takes my place. How does this happen and continue to happen at an organizational level? Right. How do I fundamentally restructure, you know, what I would call the field as an anthropologist? Right. So that people are actually, you know, engaging with this behavior uh, on a regular basis. Yeah, it, it kind of falls in line with Ray's presentation on Bridgewater's methodology around idea meritocracy. How have mm-hmm. you seen at Amazon or other organizations that you've been a part of that concept received by everyone in the organization to your point to keep things moving, even in my absence, how do we generate that idea meritocracy so that innovation continues to drive not mm-hmm. at only at the corporate level, but also for the customer? Um, so, Amazon has an incredible mechanism here, right? An incredible system, which is called the PRFAQ um, process. If, if you don't know it, it's a it's working back. It's it's called working backwards. The PRFAQ process. Those things are are in many ways synonymous. So it's a it's a perspective where anyone within the organization can develop an idea and write. A working backwards document, and very often that working do- backwards document takes the form of the PRFAQ. And the PRFAQ is a press release and an FAQ for for customers on the day that this new product or new idea is released to the world. And it's from the perspective of what value are you bringing to the customer? Why does the customer care? Right? What will this you know, what will this do for them? How will this change their lives? And how is this newsworthy in any way? Right. Right. And so it, it gets people within the organization and it empowers people at every, um, at every level of the organization to think not about just their feature or their technology, which is what people are working on all the time, but to ladder up to, no, no, what does this actually do for the customer? If I am reading about this from a customer's perspective, why do I care? And if I have a bigger idea, anybody, anywhere can write a PRFAQ, present it to their manager, and then, and then present it to their manager's manager, and at some point, you know, get it funded, right? If their manager right. can fund it directly, they will often fund it directly. Exactly. Right? If exactly. not, you know, and it's a great idea, you know, if it has to go up to the CEO level to get funded and it's a great idea, it will. And so it is um, that kind of thing, right, that drives innovation, right, and is put in place so that, you know, an idea can come to fruition. And that preserves the diversity of thought, right? And so um, anyone can write it, right? So I, I actually mentor someone at Amazon who manages a call center in Dallas, Texas, right? I live in San Francisco. I'm in, uh, you know, front end engineering and product management and design. Um, but he decided he wanted me to mentor him. So, you know, he's, uh, you know, uh, you know, recently from India, he and I have very, very different backgrounds, very, (laughs) very different functional experiences, but you know, we're talking and we have this working backwards framework. He has, he had a great new idea, for how we can help people with uh, our customers on customer service. And so he and I worked together on his PRFAQ that he presented and then got promoted and got his own team 
to develop the idea. And and you talk a lot about taking those ideas forward. I think from that level, the employee level, I would venture to say that the majority of discussions today in the workplace around culture originate from disengaged employees. Um how can I would we, agree. <laughs> yeah, how, how can we analyze our strengths and insert ourselves in key areas or conversations within our organization to spur that growth? So one of the things that I um, that I know right now is that no organization is going to explicitly say, we want to quash new ideas. So we want people to just be automatons in their jobs and not really challenge much of what anyone says, right? right. Nobody's going to actually say that. So every organization has the right words on the page. At the same time, you're right. There is a lot of disgruntled employees because they don't believe the words on the page. So if you are an employee, you need to figure out if you're the person who wants to start running some experiments and start. And when you run these experiments, you will provoke the organization. So. Um, so, for example, if you're, you know, this, the email came out from the CEO saying we're going to be the most innovative organization in the world. We want every employee to be, uh, you know, empowered to bring new ideas to the fore. You know, what is one experiment that you can run right within your team in your current role to see if that is true? Right. Can you buy some inflatable unicorns and put them around the office? Can you? <laughs> create brown bags for different people to get together and talk about, you know, different uh, products that they're working on and see how you can work together. Can you interview a couple of customers directly and come up with a new idea and present it to your manager and say, hey, this is what I heard from customers. Can we work on this new idea? So any one of those things, if you were to start to do that, um, will provoke a response. And the response could be, uh, uh, you know, surprisingly positive, or it can be surprisingly negative. But mm -hmm. I almost guarantee you that you will be surprised by the response. Right. And so, and the idea of the experiment, right, is to learn. Because that the surprise is not a bad thing. The surprise is a great thing because you have just provoked the organization to go beyond the words and really start to unearth what are the fundamental assumptions that govern how we behave within this organization? And those things don't come out. You know, it's like the fish within water, right? Like the fish doesn't know about water. Right. And so you have to jump out of the water, you know, and that's unpleasant and uncomfortable for a fish. Right. And then you learn about the water, right? And yeah, then you're like, ah, there's water. <laughs> uh, because when I jumped out of it, it was really uncomfortable because I couldn't breathe, right? Right. Um, and so, and so you will provoke the organization and that provocation, it, now it is a risk, right? So you have to really, uh, you know, employees really need to think about how, how much risk are they willing to take and, and weigh all that with their life circumstances. I'm not, I'm not naive about that. Um, but if you are one of these people who, you know, really cannot live without, you know, driving new ideas, you may want to start provoking the organization and doing things and you may be positively surprised, in which case you learn and you then take a bigger step, 
and then a bigger step. And, a, and maybe you can just go like whole hog big step, right? Because you get so much support. Or you may be um, negatively surprised and that the, you may have found out, find out that there are things that are much stronger than those words in the email that are governing the behavior of the organization. And then you start to maybe shift your focus on, okay, I tried to get people together in a room and talk and their managers emailed me, you know, uh, and told me to cut it out because I was wasting their time. That's interesting. <laughs> what is something else I can do? Right. Right. And I put up posters, right. That instead don't, don't take up time, you know, but help people to collaborate together. Can I leave some post-its near those posters so that people can ambiently start talking? And then will the manager sort of soften up and understand the value of collaboration that way, right? So it's the experiments there are to provoke and those from those provocations, right, will come discomfort and surprise. Right. And from what we learn. Without a doubt. Yeah, I've, I've seen even take a quote from Simon Sinek, customers will never love a company until employees love it first, right? And so mm -hmm. you have to balance the risk and the reward. Uh, but you do have to challenge yourself. And, and to your analogy about the fish, get outside your comfort zone to really learn more about yourself and your company. I mean, you've talked a lot of di about different archetypes, um, defining, you know, what type of company archetype and leader you work for is key as well. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of things we can do as employees. And, and so we've touched on really philosophically, uh, your views and I appreciate your views from the corporate, the leadership and the employee roles. As I launched, uh, the topic, around culture to my social uh, forums. Uh, it was interesting how quickly the responses turned to both racial and gender diversity, or what I refer to as identity diversity. Uh, the more I read and research mostly cognitive diversity. I'm always evaluating the role identity that diversity plays in establishing innovative teams. What are your thoughts on cognitive identity versus um, the identity diversity? I think that they are... And I know this gets, ways, this, yeah. this, this gets yeah. a little controversial, but this these are the conversations that when I approached you about this discussion that I was seeing a, a ton of talk about, right. And yeah, no, I understand. Yeah. So, so here's, here's my perspective is when we see an organization that is extremely homogenous in terms of gender and ethnicity and the response is, oh, but we have a lot of cognitive diversity. I think it's an excuse. And I think that people are being intellectually dishonest. 50% mm -hmm. of our population and about 55 to 60% of all college graduates are women. And so do you mean to tell me that you are truly a meritocracy, but it just so happens 
that that the majority of people with a college degree are not represented in your C-suite by accident. Right. I mean, the statistics, right? There, there's, there was a statistician actually who responded to the, the Google thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, the statistics are astounding. There's such a low probability that given the education uh, you know, makeup, the educational makeup of the United States, that women would be less than 10 or 15% of the top leadership um, in big tech companies. That is, is totally statistically like such a small possibility or such a small probability that it is completely intellectually dishonest for these people to say, oh, it's a meritocracy and we've been, you know, biasing for cognitive diversity and not for, you know, gender diversity. And there's been no, uh, no discrimination that that is so probabilistically improbable (laughs) (laughs) that the math, like these people are supposed to be like engineering and, and math gurus. Like there's no way that they can actually say that with a straight face. Right. So there is, uh, and I, you know, and I don't believe the two of them are completely the same thing, but if you're really going for cognitive diversity and you're just going for people who are really the smartest and most educated people in the world, regardless of their identity, you will have, if you are really truly doing that. And I have some you know, mechanisms that I write about, about how I do that as a manager, you will by accident have a totally diverse team. I mean, my team, you know, is, extremely diverse in all ways, you know, people from all over the world, you know, you know, some of my, many of my top people are women, you know, they're, you know, they look very different from each other, right? If you were walk into the room, you'd be like, oh, this is like a Benetton ad, right? (laughs) Um, I mean, you can, you can see a post that I had on LinkedIn about my, my hiring philosophy, which is, you know, to take sort of bias out of the, of the thing by just focusing on the work product. If you just focus on the work product, and work results for real, you will by accident get a very ethnically and gender diverse team. And that is what I have, I have personally found throughout my experience, my 20 year work experience. I have never asked a recruiter to get me a female candidate or get me an African-American candidate or get me a whatever candidate. I've never asked a recruiter to do that but I do focus on work product and work results as opposed to things like culture fit or how much I like them or things like that. I don't focus on those things. I focus on work product and work results and really their thinking in artifacts that I can assess candidates against each other objectively. And I just so happen to always have both cognitively and gender and ethnically diverse teams. So I, I don't believe it. I think it's probabilistically improbable. Mm -hmm. Um, and in my personal anecdotal experience, I can tell you it's not that hard to do. It really isn't. Right. Yeah. And back to your earlier point, I was, I was doing some additional research and saw that Morgan Stanley and the Peterson Institute found that gender parity in the boardrooms and at the sea level actually leads to higher returns, but yet leveling that parity seems to be a struggle within most organizations today. Um, so, so back to your point, focusing solely on 
cognitive diversity, uh, if put into practice perfectly, uh, you'll fall upon accidentally. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. Another question that came was around uh, innovation to some is generally the result of a mistake or taking a risk, uh, which means that someone got something wrong. How do you strike a balance in the conversation of ensuring stability and some elements of predictability, yet support failure as a means of innovation? So this is one of my favorite topics because I get to actually argue with other Silicon Valley people because we don't (laughs) agree. So there's this, there's this love in Silicon Valley about failing fast and rewarding failure and giving out failure awards. And I am very clear with my teams. Failure is not a goal. Nobody gets rewarded for failure. (laughs) I mean, uh, I don't reward failure. Um, I reward better ideas. Um, if you did something and it didn't turn out the way that you had hoped or expected, you are only rewarded if you do something that's better than what you hoped or expected. And so it is, I believe that, again, this is where the, the surprise element comes in, right? And where learning comes in. When you do something and you are surprised, you need to be open-minded enough to really incorporate objectively the learnings from that surprise in an unemotional way and then say, what have I learned and what does this mean for the next thing I should do? And when the thing that you do is actually better than the original thing that you intended to do, if you were on my team, I would reward you handsomely. But failure itself is not a goal. And so um, Silicon Valley right now, for some reason, is obsessed with rewarding failure. And I completely disagree with that. I am obsessed with rewarding people who objectively take the learnings and the data from surprises, whether good or bad. Right. And getting to better outcomes. I like that. In, in driving better ideas uh, that exactly. are rewarded. So to, to finish up, we started this conversation with a uh, comment that you finished with and, and really posed to your listeners out at the Culture Summit. And that was, do something small this week, learn. Do something bigger next week, learn and repeat. Can you kind of expand on that philosophy for our listeners and, and again, kind of challenge those listening to this podcast uh, to kind of think outside the box, get out of the water, uh, be that fish kind of taking a risk and floundering around? Yeah, I mean, I think that the first thing is to really ask yourself, what is the goal, <laughs> right? What mm-hmm. is your goal? Like really, um, both professionally and personally, what is the goal? What is the goal of your team? You know, uh, what are the things that you're being asked to do differently? And then do you believe it? And how do you test, right? How, uh, how much you and your, you know, your organization is willing, right, to get outside your comfort zone. And so this is really around, you know, asking yourself, you know, and maybe the 4S framework is helpful here. Um, what's a new way that I can tell a story or a new type of story or a story about a customer, what is one way that I can restructure, reorganize work on my team, especially if you're a manager or you're a top leader? You know, what are some of the systems or what is, you know, can I just redesign my space, for example? Can I redesign, 
you know, can five of us get together and like all kind of, you know, take down our cubicle walls and do something different with our space or just put in, you know, some new ways or some posters of customers so that we can be much closer to them and really sort of focus on their pain points as opposed to kind of feature product level things, you know, um, you know, in skills, right? How am I, if you're involved in hiring, um, and interviewing, right? How am I actually assessing people? What am I assessing them for? How do I do that? Right. And, and, um, and how do I put in like a little experiment in terms of maybe asking them to do an exercise on paper as opposed to just talk verbally will help me get better results, right? And, and assess them better. So just pick one experiment, one thing that you can do that will, you know, help you get to your goal. Again, work backwards from goals. Don't start with just like, a, oh, this would be fun. Inflatable unicorns, right? Um, uh, you know, find out what your goal is figure out what's one experiment that you actually, you can do, not sell to your boss, not try to like, you know, have wishful thinking around like, oh, if only the CEO would do this, right? That's not, that's not, that's not helpful, mm -hmm. right? Um, this is a something else that I say to the people who work for me. And like, I do not live in the world of wishful thinking. I live in the real world. So like, tell me the like one thing that you actually, you can do, right? Um, so don't engage in a lot of wishful thinking, find one thing that you actually can do and then see what happens. Right. And if it moves you closer to your goal, or if you learn something about the culture and the mental models that are governing your organization that you haven't seen before, and then how can you incorporate that into the next little thing that you do and how you push the organization. And then once you actually get something that has a positive feedback loop, do something bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Oh, that's great feedback. I, I really do appreciate it. And uh, for those listening in, again, this is Tatiana Mamut. Uh, she is the general manager and director at Amazon Web Services. Tatiana, we really do appreciate your time. Um, and I have just one last question for you. Where is Amazon's next headquarters going to be, in your opinion? Well, I really have no idea, but I would like to, to be on Mars personally. <laughs> I can, I've always wanted to be a cosmonaut as a little girl. And so Mars would be awesome. No, Mars would be good. I was thinking Atlanta. I, li I like Atlanta. But um, again, we appreciate your time today. And uh, thank you for carving out some time with me. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. <laughs> The topic of culture continues to be one of the most controversial headlines in our society today. It fills our social feeds. But yet, no matter the role we play within our organizations, we all have the ability to influence our culture. Find something small to do this week. Learn from it. Find something bigger next week. Learn from it. And then repeat. Continue that process. Be that change agent. Get outside your comfort zone. Be that fish out of the water. Thank you for listening to episode five of the Big Swings podcast. We hope that you'll join us on all of our socials, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, also at thebigswings.com. Sign up, register to become a part of that community. Also, episode six is coming out in just a couple weeks featuring Kanish Priyadarshi. Head of Engineering and Innovation for High Tech and Electronics at IBM, focused on AI and machine learning. Exciting episodes ahead. Thank you for listening in, and I'm your host, Eric Schaefer. We'll talk again soon.